1: You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and enjoy.
0: Amy Bender, that's who we're celebrating tonight, you guys. She's the author of so many novels, The Color Master, The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake, which was a New York Times bestseller, An Invisible Sign of My Own, and of the collections The Girl in the Flammable Skirt, and Willful, Willful Creatures. Her works have been widely anthologized and have been translated into 16 languages. That's exciting. And after we have a reading from Amy, we'll be joined by Suan Yen. And Suan Yen is the author of two novels, Ms. Temple Chronicles, and Madeline is Sleeping. She's also been the finalist for the National Book Award and the winner of the Janet Heidinger Kafka Prize, and also a, a, a story collection forthcoming this September, which is called Likes. So that sounds very exciting. Her fiction has appeared in many magazines, including The New Yorker, Tin House, and the Best American Short Stories. She's also been named one of the 20 under 40 fiction writers by The New Yorker. So we're very excited to have Swan Yan as well. All right, you guys, I'm gonna disappear and we're gonna bring on Amy Bender and wherever you are in the world, put your hands together for Amy Bender. Yay, Amy. Thank you, Christine. All right. No, 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 no.
2: There you go. No. go. Should I get headphones? Thank you, Skyeyes. Sky I, I am trying headphones. Thanks everyone for your patience.
0: You're good, Amy. Wait.
2: I think it was me. It was my fault. I had it open another <laughs> window. Sorry. Okay. Sarah, wait. Are you? Can you hear me, Sarah? Yeah, Amy, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Good. Okay. Um, okay. Um, so, all that echoing was my fault. <laughs> Thank you, back to the thank you. Thank you, Christine. Thank you to Skylight, such a beloved bookstore. And thank you to Sarah for being here with me. Such a joy and pleasure. And I'm just gonna do, because it seems like a good time to do it at the beginning, but that Sarah's book, Likes, is an incredible book of short stories and it comes out in September. And we're all so lucky that that is gonna be in the world really soon. So just wanted to make sure to say that. So. Um, we're gonna start, okay, good, can hear you now. And I'm just seeing names of people from all different parts of my life and what a thrill to know that you guys are here. This is such a weird format. We're in such a weird world time and I feel, I feel enormously supported and I just appreciate it so much. Um, okay, so what we're gonna do, there's gonna be a little reading and then Sarah and I are gonna talk for a bit and then we're gonna do Q and A. And I asked Sarah, there's some portions of the book of The Butterfly Lampshade that are dialogues that don't have any dialogue tags or anything. And I asked Sarah if she would be willing to read one with me. And she was very- Overjoyed. <laughs> she was overjoyed, which is such a great reaction. So we're gonna read a scene and it's chapter 15 of the book. So just to give you the tiniest bit of background in order to get to this point, it's just probably about a Six minute-ish scene is my guess, six, seven. Um, But the main character, it's from the point of view of a a young woman named Francie who's looking back at a time. She's eight and she's going through a transition where her mother has just had a psychotic episode and she's going to go live with her aunt and uncle in Burbank from Portland. And in the interim, her aunt's about to have a baby. And so she has to... um, stay at the babysitter's because there's nowhere for her to stay. And so the babysitter's name is Shreena and we're gonna read a scene. Um, and hopefully they're gonna, as my kids say, biggin. They're gonna biggin Sarah again. Okay, good. Now they're gonna biggin me. Um, all in. There we go. We are both biggined up. Um, small in, it's good, it's a good verb. So, okay. And I think I think that's all you need to know. She's staying there and she's just gotten, she's driving home from school with the babysitter and they're in the car. Good, Sarah, good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're gonna start. Do you like the radio? It's okay.
3: I know this must be so confusing, Francie.
2: Is this your car? Yes. It's green. It is. I like green. Do you always drive this car?
3: I do. Do you like it? I do. I'm glad. That's my lucky troll. We'll have a couple good days of just you and me before the train ride. It's Friday, weekend ahead. I know a great pancake place for tomorrow morning. Do you like pancakes? Yes. We'll get in line early. They have the most amazing syrup. It's a kind of special berry. You know those Marion berries? Marion berry. They're those really long blackberries. So long and skinny, like someone pulled a blackberry and stretched it. Delicious. And we will talk to your aunt and uncle every day, okay? My mom? She can't talk to you just yet. As soon as she is better and she can talk, You will definitely talk to her. That's the glove compartment. Can I open it? It's messy in there. You don't usually sit in the front, do you? What's this? Just Advil. Yeah, that should stay there. I probably should have put you in the back, but it's so messy too. Would you rather sit in the back? No. Sorry, that's just an old fork. I don't know why that's there. Freena? Yes? When do I go? Sunday, Sunday morning. And will I talk to my mom then? Not yet, Francie. God, I'm really sorry. They said not yet, probably not by Sunday. It's going to take her a little while to feel better enough to talk. What's this for? Those are the papers I need for the car, insurance and stuff. Careful, I do need those. What's this for? Oh, is this gum? Yeah, I think it's kind of old. Can I have a piece? I think it's too old. I mean, oh, okay. If you really want, sure. Where do they live? Your aunt and uncle? In Los Angeles. Didn't they tell you you were going to live with them? For now, at least? Just push it back up to close it. Push and close. Thanks. Let me just park. This is me right here. You see the little window on top? Have you ever been to a loft? No. Then I will get to show you one. I'm so glad.
2: They, they told me. He told me. He seems really nice. The gum tastes weird.
3: Just spit in my hand, Fancy. There you go. Come up the stairs. Let's get you settled. This is the living room, Francie. This is the kitchen. It's really small. Up there is the loft. I sleep up there. Can you see the bed? Yes. It's called a loft, that whole upstairs area on top of the ladder. Are you hungry? No. I might have some cookies. Do you like cookies? Is this your lamp? The butterfly lamp? It is. Do you like it? Yes. Have a seat on the couch or chair, wherever. Make yourself at home. Have you ever heard that expression? No. It means feel comfortable here. Like, make it like it's your own home. Where is that bag of cookies? I mean, what do you do at home most days when you come home from school? Play cards, maybe? Cards. I don't think I have cards.
2: Watch a show?
3: I have a TV over on that table under the fringy scarf. Do you think there's a show you like
2: on now? I don't know.
3: Do you know how to look for it?
2: No. Okay, hang on. I'm
3: going to get the cookies first. Food first. I was always so hungry when I came home from school. I swear I would eat a whole loaf of toasted bread with butter. Cookies, cookies, cookies. Where are you? Cookies? Crackers? No. Do you like crackers? Oh, here. And plate. Plate, plate, plate. Exactly. And wait, let me get you a napkin. I like the lamp. I'm so glad. My mother got it for me when I was a little girl. Here, let me turn it on.
2: Butterflies are so red. Aren't they? And golden. And here you are. Why don't you come on over? Milk?
3: I have some soy milk. Okay. Go ahead and sit. The couch is good. This couch is very soft. I picked my couches for softness. There you go. I swear, I sat on every couch in the store. They were ready to throw me out. Help yourself. Have as many as you'd like. It's good. I'm so glad, Francie. Have you had soy milk before? I don't know. It's vanilla flavored. Do you like vanilla? Yes. Okay, let me just listen to my messages for a minute. You good? Yes, thank you. Of course, sweetie. Where'd your mother get the lamp from? Just listening for a second. Hang on. My brother called. He's in New York. The soy milk is good. Good, good. And erase. And then my bank. Erase. And then Susie, my friend. That's Susie from school? Different Susie. Hang on. And erase. Did she make the lamp? My mother? I believe she bought it at a department store. Did your uncle say he'll stay at the hospital with the baby tonight? What's the name of the store? I don't know. Probably Robinson's. She used to really like Robinsons. Why? Is there a Robinsons near here? You want to see where my mother bought the lamp? Yes. Why, Francie? I like it. That's so nice of you. I'll tell my mother. She'll be very pleased. What do you like about it? The butterflies on it. You want one of your own? Yes. This was years and years ago. I mean, I don't know if they have them anymore. I don't even think Robinson's exists anymore, does it? But you'll be sleeping on this couch. You can sleep right next to it. Here? I can leave it on at night if you'd like. Do you like a light at night? OK. Great. You can watch the butterflies if you wake up. It's, it's a soft bowl. It'll be perfect. Did you have enough cookies? Yes, thank you. Great. Let's find your show. I need to do a little work, but you can watch, and I can work, and then we'll hang out. How does that sound? Good. And we'll talk to your aunt and uncle later with an update on your mom and the baby.
2: Serena, when I go, can I take the lamp?
3: You'll have a brand new cousin. Wow. You will be such an amazing help to them. Can
2: I take it with me?
3: Sorry? Take what with you? The lamp. Take the lamp? You mean with you on the train? I could put it in a box. Oh gosh. I'm so sorry, Francie. It's just it's a gift from my childhood. I feel like I should keep it. That's okay. I'm sorry. I should probably just give it to you. Okay. But it's like the only thing from a certain time, from when my parents divorced. Just it's special to me. I'm so glad you like it. You can visit it anytime. Me? Of course you. It could be your special lamp to visit. But
2: how? I mean, whenever you are in town, you can come visit it. Is this the show? No, will I be in town? Oh, I'm sure you will.
3: Your aunt and uncle will bring you up here to see your mother.
2: Isn't it far?
3: I mean, yeah, it's a little far, but they will come up here. Of
2: course they will. This one? The squirrels? I don't like that one. When will I visit? I don't know, Francie. Every week?
3: No, probably not every week. Maybe every month? Every other month? And then I can visit the lamp. The lamp, anytime. time. You can come see it every visit, absolutely. Even on a weekend? Definitely, definitely on a weekend. That one's OK. This one? Yes. Here you go. OK, it's ready.
2: You ready? Do you want to talk more? No, why are you crying? I'm not crying. I
3: don't know, am I? Just a little, I just, I just want you to have a good trip. You're a good kid.
2: I'm not. You are, Francie. You are very good. I just imagined something bad. You did? What did you imagine? I can't tell you. Of course you can. You can tell me anything. You were burning in a fire. Oh, sweetie. Really? Oh, wow. You've had a tough day. You were yelling a little, I think, and burning. It's okay. It's okay. Where did you see something like that? When I was laughing or something. Did you watch a show for grown-ups? I just saw it in my mind. Okay. Okay. Well,
3: You didn't burn me, see? I'm fine, I'm regular temperature. I'm not hurt at all. You sure? I'm sure, I'm sure.
2: Look, I'm fine, okay? Would you like me to watch with you a little bit? And maybe also throw a knife at you. I will watch
3: with you a little bit, okay?
2: This one is good. This is where they go to school. I would really like to watch it with you. Teacher is funny. She's a rabbit. We'll just sit here together and watch it. Okay. Okay. Sorry, I said that. I don't really want you to burn up.
3: I understand, Francie. It's okay. I don't plan on burning up. Let's just watch the show. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Amy. That was such a treat to be inside the book with you.
2: Oh, it's and,
3: so nice to hear you. make
2: her readable <laughs> and kind.
3: <laughs> and, and this scene captures exactly what makes Francie such an irresistible character to me, which is that I can never anticipate what turn her thoughts might take or how she's going to respond to something yet her response as unexpected as it is always feels necessary and right just as this little flight of violent fantasy feels right in that in that moment and at this moment in the book um so will you talk a little bit about what Drew you to Francie, Um, and did you always know that that she was going to be narrating this story? Um,
2: I I think well, it's just to backtrack a little bit, and it is it's it's interesting because there's a different feeling in typing out her voice and reading her aloud, and um, it's just you know that was the first time we've done that, and that was that was really fun and kind of interesting to do. So thank you for being game. and for reading Sreena so beautifully. So I think what the interesting thing about Francie, and I think when the way that this book developed is, uh, I developed in these very little nuggets for a good couple of years, because my kids were really little and I was just writing for a small amount of time in the day. And, um, but Francie's voice did come pretty early, but I had, pages about different situations with a voice kind of like hers and I I would say maybe the clue to her voice or to something about her was that whenever I would write I would just write little bits and you know tiny pieces of things and um it was she was always talking about an aunt an aunt Mm -hmm. and an uncle Mm -hmm. and she wasn't talking about her mother and she wasn't talking about her father and I didn't know why and I thought maybe they had died and so I kind of had a plot line where it was like she was in some way orphaned and then that actually didn't there wasn't any sort of gumption to follow through that so there was something else that had happened and it was kind of an exploration of her voice to try to find out through that word aunt and uncle and like how that was going to play out in the plot and I think her her sort of tone and and her, she, like, there's a sign, I'm in the space that I'm in right now is this garage office where I work. And and I have a sign, you could probably even get it, but it says like measured, there was something measured mm-hmm. in her voice that felt really important to me. And as I, so, so in that dialogue, she, well, she's sort of, she's um, reticent in a certain way, but she's also letting you in on a lot of her interiority but um, there was something about a measured quality to her that felt really central to the process of seeing where the book was going to go.
3: Yeah. And, you know, you know, speaking of, of orphans, one of the things that I was so moved by in this book is the kindness of adults. Um, You know, and, and we see it in this scene with Shrina and we see it with, with, Aunt Min and and Uncle Stan, and and even this steward who appears to escort her on her journey from Portland to Los Angeles, Um, you know, and it's such a, a sort of contrast to the sort of Dickensian 19th century orphan, you know, who is just constantly beset by... Ill meaning adults, and and something I was just really moved by was just this sort of reimagining of a child in trouble, and that sort of the adult in her life, even in some of them are very peripheral, like step in to, to sort of help her on this passage.
2: Yeah, and it's so I'm glad to hear that, and that a piece of that was pretty deliberate in that. I think the the conflicts in the book or inside the characters felt to me like the thing I wanted was most interested in developing was were the kind of internal conflicts of um, thoughts that are frightening to have maybe in a certain way. What are what are the kinds of thoughts that we have? That's why that scene in some ways is a good emblematic scene. Is that she's sort of you know fascinated with this shade, but then is also having just these weird. Um, kind of violent aggressive thoughts towards this person who's showing her such kindness and then also kind of frightening herself with those thoughts. And And I think I wanted, the, I wanted her sort of transition and her journey to be shepherded by people who were well-meaning and were basically really doing right by her, but that there was a situation with her mother that was not even her mother's fault, that was an illness and is an illness in the character that she has to contend with. And then what how does that play out because there are going to be conflicts that come up, but I guess I felt like those central conflicts I wanted to be about each person kind of contending with their own perceptions. And so that that would be the central tension within Francie and within other characters and that these would play out between the characters in certain ways. But, but yeah, that it wouldn't be that there was a sort of villain coming in. Um, or not even a villain, but just like a real angst coming in through other ways, that it would be a different sort of um, base for the conflict. Which was a kind of odd place to maneuver from, but also just felt like the way that the I wanted the book to go or the book was going on its own or whatever,
3: you know? You were listening to
2: it. <laughs> I was trying, I was trying. <laughs> Blocking it and then trying to listen to it, yeah.
3: But, you know, interestingly, something that, that Francie isn't afraid of is she isn't afraid of being
0: alone. Um,
3: And and that was something that I was so uh, struck by as I was reading it a second time. Um, And as you know, this book affected me so powerfully when I first read it back in early January, which feels now like a lifetime ago. But reading it again now in the middle of our ongoing crises, it's taken on this whole new sense of meaning and urgency. And I can't help but read it now in an almost instructional way. Like, it's teaching me how to embrace quarantine. It's teaching me how to. live with being alone, um, because Francie, as an adult, in a sense, has created her own version of a stay at home order.
2: Right. Totally. No, yes. she,
3: she, <laughs> she, she she leaves her nine to five job so she can work exclusively at home. She gets her online business up and running. She stops seeing friends and she limits her social contact to just those her immediate family. Um, yeah, and in in order to pursue this project of collecting her memories of gathering her memories, she deliberately unloosens herself from from time and from the outside world. Um, and that's something I've been struggling so much the sense of kind of being unmoored in time. Um, and, and she says, what for another person might feel lonely or damaging would be right now, for me, a kind of vitamin. And so I was, I was wondering, did this, did writing this book make you think differently about isolation? And, and did it allow you to approach our current
2: isolated state with less fear? I mean, you frame it so beautifully, Sarah, it's just, you know, it's moving to here. So thank you for that. And I think, I mean, it's nice. The reason the framing also feels so helpful is there were moments that I was like, okay, I have this book coming out in the middle of this time that is such a difficult, Stressful, worrisome, scary time, and all these things. And if I were to summarize the plot, the main character goes into a tent of her own making to learn and think about things, which does feel like, yeah, is anyone going to want to read that? So it feels like the way you frame it is so like, inviting and lovely, but you know, fair enough. People are like, yeah, that I can't, that is not my cup of tea right now. But I think, um, I guess, well, I mean, one of the things that makes me think of is that um, there, and I think readers will have different perceptions of this, but she is sort of stripping away things in her life to have this focus. And I think it depends on how reliable she feels to you as a narrator. Because I kind of, I sort of did believe her, or or I was really, tr- I, I felt that what she was doing was the right thing for her. But I also yeah. felt like it certainly looks like someone isolating themselves to a dangerous degree. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have a sort of interplay between different characters a little bit because, I think from outside perception and for other characters, this wouldn't be the right thing, but I think for her, there was something about slipping away from the structure of time and there's, there's a job, she's at a framing store and she's framing things and there's something about like the meaning making of framing that's really annoying to her and she wants to sort of move into that place where the edges have become blurred. And I think for a character, and also this is true of me too, who likes things sort of, structured, to move out of the structure into a kind of looseness um, was the way to access some of the strangeness that she was going to encounter in her own memories. Um, And so, so, and what was the thing I was going to just say? Well, anyway, so yeah, I feel like there's, there is some way with this quarantine time that we're, we're all, you know, those of us that are mostly just home you know trying to figure out what that means and looks like and but it's hard because you know like i think there are people that are that are by themselves and they're having uh, their own experience and figuring out something about that versus um others of us with families who are having very very little time alone you know so it's just like there's such a mishmash of experience and everything is turned up the volume is turned up for everyone um, so so I think, yeah, for her, that was a very deliberate move. And I just, she's sort of single-minded as a character in terms of like, this is the thing I need to do. And, oh, it was about the framing, sorry. And that this idea of um, what if you move away from framing things, what does that mean? If you are trying, you know, what is the opposite of that? Where does the meaning come in if you don't frame the thing? Where does the natural meaning in things?
3: And she emerges from this period of self-created isolation changed. And and that was very much how I felt by the time I finished reading the book. I did feel altered by the experience And and, and it made me, reading it now a second time, made me feel hopeful that I might come out of this, experience altered um, and not for the worse. Um, <laughs> but 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 this is something that Kevin Brockmeyer in his just beautiful review um, talked about this sense of, of feeling changed by the end of the book. Um, and it was I mean it was a dream, dream review. It was so highly attuned to what you were doing, and, and so deeply considered, um, and I just I I was nodding in emphatic agreement as I was as I was reading along in the review, um, but but strangely I did find myself questioning, just a little bit, uh, the review's use of the adjectives surrealist and supernatural. In describing the novel. Um, and it was so funny because everything I was like, oh yes, 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 yes. And then I came up against those words, and I and I was like, oh, I was I I it made they made me wonder. Um and and you know, this is by no means the first time your fiction has been described that way, and you are so beloved as a fabulist, and words like magical and surreal are are so often used in relation to your work. But I wonder if the fantastic may be working in a slightly different way in this book. Um, And I'm wondering if the formative role that mental illness plays here, does that do something to the presence of the fantastic? In an an early chapter, Francie says in her very measured, uninflected way, (laughs) I don't know whether there is a lot of documentation on psychotic people and psychic people and if they have any overlap. I'm guessing no. (laughs) And I feel like throughout the novel, she is struggling to figure out the relationship between events that might be called otherworldly or magical and the mental illness that haunts her and her family. And as you were writing, how are you thinking about the interplay between the two?
2: I love that question. And I think, I mean, I think what it, it, like if I were to think of the sort of soup of thoughts and feelings that were in my mind in the process of writing the book I would say it's there's sort of a they're not even on a continuum and they're not a triangle but I think there are three parts and one was contending with this idea of a character and this is Francie's mother who does have psychotic episodes
0: mm-hmm. and
2: who does slip into a place where her perceptions of reality are she can't tell quite the difference between things. And she smashes her hand because she thinks there's a spider in it. And so she acts on that. And that is the realm that she will sometimes slip into. So to have her as a presence and a really important presence in the book, that being something she's contending with. Up against, a more kind of magical thinking would be the way I would sort of characterize it, where there's this kind of sense of like which where what is the line between thoughts and actions? And what are the ways that we sometimes think our thoughts are more powerful than they actually are? And when Francie is sort of like maybe slightly gleefully, but also cautiously saying to her babysitter, Shrina, I imagined you burning up and then Shrina being like, I'm actually OK and that Francie's the sort of character who would sort of maybe say that, whereas maybe another character wouldn't, but she's, I just feel like a character who there's some, she would kind of blurt that out. And, but that's also like a different space where the lines are fuzzier in a way that I think is interesting and different than psychosis, but living in this, it's, what happens when you have these realms up against each other? And then the realm of imagination, which is the place of the writer. And it's the place of the artist and this place of all of us making stuff. When I see it, my kids all the time, where it's just like this world where things are flowing between um, the make-believe and the real. And I guess I just wanted to throw all these things together. So you have these actualized things and she's, and so it's in that way, I feel like it is a little different than the surreal, but it's also um, the surreal being the realm of dreams and dreams being the realm of imagination. You know, like all these things and the ways that we perceive things feel. I think I really wanted to put these elements together and see what would happen and see what are the, how each character is going to cope within that and how is Francie going to sort of wrestle her own sense of the world back to herself and how is the mother going to do that and how what is up with this butterfly and and to just pose these questions to myself and to the reader yeah
3: well and and, and one of the things that that this train of thought uh made me think about is how so often within the the very amorphous genre of fabulous writing or fantastic writing. Um, The out of the ordinary events that happen are presented um, as if they cannot be questioned you know that's that's sort of a very old man with enormous wings he shows up in the village and everyone's like a very old man with enormous wings is right. an angel no it, let's
2: feed him right
3: yeah like it's it's that that, that 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 part of the aesthetic is not to question um the strangeness or the uh, oddity of of the situation, and and that's part of the expectations of the genre. But one of the things that I was so excited by in this novel is how the strange event becomes the engine of investigation, Mm -hmm. Um, that it becomes the way in which Francie is exploring how these spheres of the imagination of, magical thinking of mental illness bump up against each other and really asking herself you know there's that that powerful moment when she's describing the butterfly sort of taking on a physical reality and and she says very flatly "It, it was a psychosis i swallowed a psychosis um so, so it was very it was it was really exciting to me that instead of presenting um the inexplicable as a given mm. that the inexplicable becomes the part of the point of departure becomes the impetus for this incredible journey through memory and through time and through consciousness. Um,
2: I mean, it's so it's it's so gratifying to hear you think about it that way too. Because it I mean, I think it was, there was something about, I think there was just some preoccupation too in my mind about like, there's so met and I'm so like susceptible to this kind of storytelling, right? Of the things that come alive and how much of my childhood, I just felt like everything was animated. You know, I just had relationships with all the things, the people too, but all the things as well. And that it just felt like everything was populated and that somehow, um, like, just to really play with this idea of what that gap is—the gap between the butterfly on the lampshade and a dead butterfly in a water glass that is in a that that has a body—and how large that is—and that's why it felt like she we she drinks down this butterfly, and that happens. She mentions that very early on. So but that there's a kind of swallowing down of something that has split from a two-dimensional to a three-dimensional and what do you do with that? And what is like what are what is the other stuff that she's taking in and what are the ways that there's these ruptures in the world? Um, and some of them are gonna be explainable and some of them aren't. And that to let the ones that aren't live in that space and sort of ex- try to explore them as honestly as I can without, um, just try to explore them, I think that's, the thing. Also, and I wanted to say, too, because you're referencing this, there's a beautiful, Kevin Brockmeyer, who's a writer I admire so much, and Teach actually, wrote Mm -hmm. such an absolutely beautiful review of the book that just, I just saw today. I think it's just online today. So it's, but it's so, like, he's so thoughtful, like, it's just so, it, it, whoever assigns it to him, you know, I'm so grateful. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) it's such, he really thinks about it. Um, and same with you, Sarah, Like it just feels so good to hear it um, wrestled with in that meaningful, serious way. So nice. So
3: you mentioning uh, uh, objects becoming animated. Um, and this also you know, is a trope coming out of Gothic fiction and literature of the uncanny. Uh, um, yes. but, but and and certainly, there's like the 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 butterfly is is drawing upon that and touching upon that. But something that you also animate in this novel is stillness, and this is like a very um, maybe inside baseball question. But like, I, I was so compelled and so curious about how you managed to take a kind of quality of of deeply meditative stillness and yet infuse it with energy and yet make it so interesting. Like how how, as a writer did you sort of approach that sort sort of seeming contradiction of 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 you know rather than taking an inanimate object you sort of take a a a a existential state (laughs) (laughs) that we think of as being still and static and yet imbue it with so much
2: life and so much force i mean it's it felt kind of like a gamble and I feel like, and I do feel this about the book. The other thing I, I love about, um, like it, it's just such a peculiarly specific book and it's a, like, and so the, the gamble was um, that when I'm teaching, I'm always telling the students like go with the language and trust the language and trust where it will take you. Like that's my sort of mantra as a teacher. And I really try to do that as a writer, but here I felt like, well, I keep on, the character just sitting in her tent thinking about things and like the word on the wall is measured. And it's like, you know, what, is this okay? You know, like, is, is there adequate energy to it? But I think the thing that I felt is like, that's what I wanted to continue to write about. Like that is the thing that was drawing me. And I believe so fully that that is the one thing the writer can do is is lean in toward the thing that she's actually interested in and that it's not that easy to always know what you're actually interested in because I think there's a lot of interference to push through about what might seem interesting to other people. And, and in truth, what's interesting, what's the most interesting will, I think, tend to be the thing that is, um, you know, one's own. And I was thinking David Shields, when he was, when Reality Hunger came out, which is his book about with all this nonfiction quotes in it, and he was sort of touring and he was making these grand statements about why he loves nonfiction so much better than fiction. But he says it in a way that sort of activates debate. So it, I was just so like huffy in my mind about why fiction is so important. But it didn't like he actually helped me articulate some things to myself. So I think it was helpful. But but what he said and I think this really did stick in my mind was he was like, I just think the consciousness of another person is the most interesting thing. we're all we have so much in common in the ways that we think and we also have so much that's distinct to ourselves and a character will take on some of the qualities of the author and some of the qualities just of the character themselves because they will sort of form into their own sort of being on the page and so and i think i really leaned into that kind of hard to be like i just want to kind of get inside francie's mind and just be with her on small things like there's this whole scene that about her just watching the car pickup line and she's just ridiculously thinking about the car pickup line, but it means a lot to her and it's kind of devastating to her because everyone's getting picked up but her. And this is the day that her her mother smashes her hand, her own hand. So so it was kind of like, well, here's a bunch of pages about the car pickup line, but this is the thing that I want to be writing about. And so so be it. Here's the book. <laughs> you know, like, so, so that's part of the gamble of it. And that's where it feels like it's yeah. It's it's peculiar in that way but
3: and as in that scene, her consciousness is so uh, free roaming yet at the same time it's also for, so anchored in, in, in the physical world. And I think for me, that was one of the things that have always allowed me to go with her sort of deeper and deeper into her observations um, is that there was such attention to the, the tactility of the world. Um, and that was something that was s- s- rendered so palpably on the page. And I love this idea uh, that that the the idea that sort of gets planted uh, by her her younger cousin the idea of her childhood memories from Portland being sticky um, and and this sense of memories having this kind of tactile palpable quality to them um, but but for me one of the one of like the the overwhelming sensations of reading this book um, was of immersion, not only in a sort of abstract consciousness, but immersion in a consciousness that is so alert to the sensations of the physical world. Um, and that allowed me to see the physical world differently.
2: Um, and then I, I, okay. no, the no. I wanted, there. there's a retracing, like part of the sort of, Basically, the premise of the book is a sense of like a retracing of an experience that has been experienced but not fully lived through. And, mm-hmm. and, and yet, like when we think, because I think at parts of this transition in her life, Francie's pretty dissociated, but that if someone is dissociated, it doesn't mean that we don't take things in. Like that there's some way that she's so attuned to the physical world but then part of re-going through it is this trying to like, what else can be filled in? Which I think is part of the process of growing up, right? Because childhood is such an onslaught of the sensory world and life. And then um, into adulthood, things start to take shape. Things get named. Things get articulated in a different way. And that that changes them and, and gives a handle to them, which is both a loss, but also I think an enormous gain because you have a sense of an experience that was just a kind of onslaught of sensory detail and emotional detail
0: this has been so much fun this is wonderful everybody's chatting up a storm on the right hand side there which is so great and we've got a couple of questions that have come in uh the first one that i just have to know about is uh, amy do you still write in the closet <laughs> right this the old closet I mean,
2: now I'm writing about a girl sitting in a tent. I clearly am like obsessed with small spaces. Um, And no, I don't. The closet was specific to a certain apartment, but there was an article on it and it had a photo of it and the photo was awesome. So I think it really did look like it was even like a better closet than it ever really was. But, um, But I now write in a, part of a garage which is like there's the storage part of the garage and then there's a little writing section but it's much bigger but it still does feel like a little sequestered space which i like a lot
0: yeah my daughter's always setting up a fort or a tent something like that you know
2: yeah exactly exactly okay here comes
0: another question for you amy can you say more about how language and voice helped you to get to know a character who seems hard to know and as you've said is scared to know herself what features of her voice did you track
2: yeah, I mean, I think this thing about language is just sort of the the core of how I think about writing, because it feels like the plot, I just find it very relieving though, again, it's it's sort of a buy-in because it feels like it's not a very plotted book. And the thing that I'm trusting and hoping is that there's something in the language that is propellant enough that it will move the reader forward without a lot of events happening, because the events would have felt, if I sort of pasted on events, they would have felt false and sort of coming from an anxiety of like, is this enough? And I felt like it was enough for me. And so then I was kind of wanted to sink into it more deeply. So so that the language being like, if I'm writing a page and there's one sentence that has vitality to it, and I might not know until the next day or the day after. And the way that I'll know is I'll want to reread that one sentence, whereas the rest of the page is already boring to me. Then the whole rest of the page will go. And that one sentence will be the thing to follow. And then that one sentence, because it's already got a sort of something in it. And the thing that I think it is, is it means that it's hit a sweet spot in the unconscious. Like there's a space there where I don't really know what's going on, but I know enough to be able to write about it. And then I can write forward from that. And that that's going to be where the story is. And like, I'll make a sort of hokey map, but for students just being like, if you're writing, if you have the sort of intention of what your book is and then the book starts veering over here and you think because you're sort of trained to be a good student that you're supposed to ignore the tangent and return to the focus. Um, I think it's actually the opposite, which is the tangent is a kind of looser part of the mind directing you towards something different. And maybe that can take you somewhere.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Here's a good question. Uh, Someone is asking, I'm wondering how having kids has changed your writerly obsessions, or maybe not those obsessions, but your approach to writing about whatever they are.
2: Um, I mean, it's interesting because it's not a book about being a mother. The character is not a mother. And I think I'm so immersed in that role right now, and I often don't.
0: Yep. Did we lose you? Okay, are you there, Amy? I think you froze for a moment.
2: Like there's a beetle book that plays an important role my Beetle felt really resonant to me just as an object. And so they're just things like that that feel so evocative of childhood. So I think those things seep in. And and I'm so interested, I think, in trying to capture something of that um, childhood experience or that point of view. We're talking yeah. about the Miyazaki film mm-hmm. Spirited away and how, like that is so close to a child's point of view that it's hard to even, it's hard to know what age to show that film to children because it feels mm-hmm. so, so close that it all—it's so mm-hmm. like amazing when you're an adult, <clears throat> throws you back. But like, mm-hmm. what is it like for a kid? Is it like, is it just total overwhelm? Or at what age can the kid process that kind of
0: right, experience? right? Uh, here's a, here's an interesting question from Hillary Schroeder. She says, "I was fascinated as a child with the orphan girl characters, or at least away from their parents. Were you inspired by any of these kinds of stories?"
2: Um. Yes. I mean, I think it's so much of a basis in fairy tales, right? Mm -hmm. And so in fairy tales, you have the character's orphan, because I think it allows the reader to play out sort of, you know, they talk about it psychologically or Bettelheim talks about it as this sort of primary fear getting played out. Mm -hmm. The kid has to rely on their own resources and to see how they might go through this, you know, most painful loss. And so I think, Uh, This idea, like it's in so many stories and I think it so beyond fairy tales into children's lit and beyond, because I think it does place something squarely into the child that maybe is also something that um, at any moment, if you feel a parent, you know, and this is going to happen to every kid to varying degrees, but you feel the parent is not there then you have a moment of feeling that space and that loss. So it's a, I think it's a totally universal experience. And so everyone, I think, leans into that sort of storytelling as a way to kind of contend with those experiences and those feelings.
0: Yeah, that's great. Now here's another question for you. And then you guys, if you have any more questions, go ahead and put them uh, under the ask a question there in the center of the screen, or you can also just put it in the chat and it'll move over. Here's the question. Uh, what does age eight mean to you? And why did you choose that age,
2: From Danielle? Hi, Danielle. Um, I think I just wanted her to be young enough to feel like she would not be, she would old enough so that she would kind of know what was going on, and young enough so that she would not know that much about what was going on. So eight felt like it's sort of tottering in that space, seven yeah. or eight. I think yeah. she was kind of right in that because it's like there, there's just something that maybe a kind of more. Um, perspective and context, maybe by nine or 10.
0: Okay, we've got one more question here. Remind, uh, and remember you guys, don't forget to buy the book. Just press on that green box in the center of the screen and you'll get a signed copy. All right, here comes another question. What are the challenges of writing in the voice of a child for adults? Did your ideas about writing in the voice of a child evolve while writing the novel? Or I guess you must, or did you start with that in mind?
2: Um, hi, Matt, and You know i think it's it goes again to it's the the language will dictate the choices and i guess this is where and i don't mean to sound make it sound sort of like mystical because it's not mystical it's just sort of drudgery and then there's a sentence that works and the sentence that works if it's in the voice of a child fine and if it's not fine and if it's in the you know if there's magic great and if there's not magic great but it's just like as a writer i just feel so thrilled when anything i write feels like it, it has some kind of life on the page then i'll just be like that's the thing i just want to lean strongly into that so so for francie it did feel like there was this child's voice and the opening scene of the book is another one of these dialogues and that came pretty early and it was her voice pretty early but i didn't think I think there's just like later there was an older voice sort of thinking back, so I imagine that the the novel would have elements of both, which also lemon cake, the particular sadness of lemon cake did too. So I think it, yes, that feels like a kind of category that interests me, this sort of layering, you know, and is is not uncommon, of course, to novels, but um, layering of ages and and yeah, I'm just a childhood so interesting to me. It's just so. It's so rich with experience. And, um, and I think I just, I also love the sort of famous O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor quote about how childhood gives you all the material you need. This is a bit of a paraphrase. But it just feels like anything, when looked at closely from a child's perspective, has uh, complexity in it. Anything and, and any experience. Mm-hmm. So it can be an experience that is um, full and dramatic and realized, but it also can be something very small. And to a child, I think it registers quite deeply, and that to try to dignify that as much as possible feels like um, part of my value system or something. Like I just want—I want to dignify
0: that as much as I can. Okay, we got two more questions for you. Right. This is this seems like a massive question, but I'll throw it out there anyway. How do you how do you use time and the passage of time?
2: Use time. Um and how do I use time in the passage of time? I mean, it's it's such a funny thing right now, right? How are we living time in the passage of time? What time is yeah. it? What day is it? When is it? What's happening? Where what time zones are you guys in? Um I mean, this is the other thing about fiction, which is that fiction is flexible with time. Fiction is just amazingly flexible with time. So I feel like to to know that as a writer and to feel like you can slow down a moment moment into milliseconds if you want and you can also speed up hundreds of years and you can do that within a paragraph and that is your, you no know, budget issue with that, like you can just do that, feels like part of the fiction writer's joy and pleasure. So.
0: Okay, here's the last question for you. How do the Gothic and Uncanny influence your work? See that from Tom,
2: hi Tom. Um, I mean, the Uncanny, well, Marjorie Sandler, who I know Tom knows too, who made this wonderful anthology of the uncanny, which starts sort of, you know, with Freud and then goes through um like a some I think H. G. Wells, some ETA Hoffman, like this great sort of background of uh strangeness and this idea of this kind of familiar strangeness. Um, so maybe the uncanny even more than the gothics, though I think the gothics in there too, there's something about this idea of a kind of everyday strangeness that we all experience
0: yeah. that
2: feels, you know, it just feels like a true, it's true to life. It's, I think what I do love, um, one book that was a helpful bit, to Remainder by Tom McCarthy, and like the first half of it particularly, I really, really love because the character is just trying to recreate something, but it's not even clear if it's a memory, if I yeah. remember, and he's just making this, it's so odd, and yet there's something about it that feels accurate to the human experience and that we are such weird things with so many thoughts and layers of dreams and dreamscapes in our minds alongside the everyday. And how do we try to capture that in art? Like how, and why is it so soothing to see these things reflected back at us? And in the uncanny, um, we see it over and over again, and it feels like something feels true, right? There's something that
0: feels honest. And I think that is relieving. Okay, we actually have one more question and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, Here here we go. Amy, when you sit down to write a new project, do you have an idea of the character or premise or does that proceed from the language and sentences as you go? And for that matter, do you use prompts? When you sit down to
2: write a new project, Um, when I sit down to write and um, I write in a time block that whatever the amount of time I have available at that, phase of my life so it might be 10 minutes or it might be two hours and and I have I can sit down with nothing and the idea is just so so I'll start a lot of things so I do have ideas that I sit down with but most of those ideas uh sort of fizzle out very quickly so then I just sit there for a while and I try things out and I start things and then most things are just just sitting there I just have you know a lot of pages that don't so um, so yeah, prompts can be helpful. I definitely have used prompts, but it's, I think it's more, it's always been more to me about a kind of structure of time. And that in that structure of time, eventually something happens. eventually. And it might take a while.
0: Yeah. Okay, somebody just wants, oh, there it is. The Uncanny Reader, Stories yeah. from the Shadows. Okay, great, by Marjorie Sandor. Wonderful anthology, there it is. Okay, thank you so much, Sarah
3: can i before we sign off since we've been talking about objects so much i just have to say how delicious an object this book is because Ah. you can't necessarily quite see it on screen but when all of you hold it in your hands it has this iridescent sheen to the cover like a very subtle iridescence to it and then the The book itself is like a true purple, like a prince, purple rain, purple.
0: Um,
3: And it was very exciting when this arrived in the mail. Um, And and I know that, um, I think part of the pleasure of reading the book is, is holding this object.
0: Yeah,
3: I love
2: it. They did such a beautiful job. It is gorgeous.
0: This is so exciting. Thank you guys so much. Again, you guys, Amy Bender, And Sarah Swan yen thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Good night, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming so much. Thank you so much, Sarah.
1: Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.